Last Sunday, we began a study of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, kind of a package together. The primary reason that Paul wrote these chapters was to illustrate principles of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. And the church at Corinth needed the message because they had become divided. They had been divided. Everyone was different, everyone had different gifts, and instead of celebrating this diversity that they had in the body of Christ, it became a source of division, okay? Division. Now, Paul's major concern as he wrote through this was not establishing the definitions of the message of wisdom, message of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, prophecy, tongues, etc. It was assumed that each person in the church at Corinth understood what these things meant. And people knew what these gifts were, or Paul would have explained every one of them. Today, sometimes we try to explain exactly what these gifts mean, and, and we run into some exegetical difficulties, and, and we'll talk about that later on when we get into chapter 14. But most of the gifts that are listed are pretty much self-evident and logical. They're illustrative, not exhaustive, as we find some, some gifts in other parts of the New Testament. But Paul's greater concern was that certain gifts were being elevated, Primarily, it was tongues as a supposed sign of a higher spirituality. And that had caused the division in the church, so Paul writes this as a corrective. A corrective. This is a teachable moment for Paul, and so he uses it to answer questions and correct some of the misconceptions that they had in this church. Last Sunday, we looked at I Belong, 1 Corinthians 12, the first 11 verses. We looked at what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is defined as, this is a little bit of review, Spiritual gifts are special abilities given by the Holy Spirit to every believer in the body of Christ according to God's design and grace for use within the context of the body. The six principles for spiritual gifts we looked at, number one was be aware of spiritual gifts. There are a variety of spiritual gifts. Everyone has at least one spiritual gift. All spiritual gifts are for the common good. Number five, God decides what the spiritual gifts we receive and the Holy Spirit empowers all the spiritual gifts. Today, the unity is in the diversity. We're gonna look at seven facts about the body of Christ, and since you are all part of a church, a local church, it's E.C. Wesleyan that meets here, that this is very, very relevant. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. We're gonna look at 12 through 18 first, and then we'll read different parts of the chapter as we go through. It's on page 931, if you wanna look at it in the Bible in the rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians 12, we're gonna start with verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though it, all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Everything begins with God. Everything begins with God. And fact number one states, God is the source. God is the source of diversity and unity. God is the source of diversity and unity. 
Letter A states this, diversity is by God's own design. It's God's design. Diversity is not an accident. Diversity is not a product of random selection. It's not the product of some cosmic evolutionary process evolving from a single cell or whatever. Verse 18 says, God has arranged. Now the word, we look at, we look at original language once in a while, those of you who love grammar, okay, both of you. God has arranged. The word is in the aorist tense in the Greek. We don't have it here, but in the original language, it's past tense, which we have. It's punctiliar, which means it happened at a point in history, and it has present and ongoing results, okay? So it's something that happened past tense at a point in time has present and ongoing results. So when we talk about God has arranged, it means that God has placed and arranged you, every one of you, Every one of you from the beginning of time in the body of Christ as he planned it. He planned this, okay? You think, my, my life seems chaotic and I, I can't make sense of it. Hey, God planned for you to be part of this body before the world began. It refers to creation, that God made everything like it is. And each of us are where we are by divine placement. It's God's work. It's God's work. Diversity is not an accident. Diversity is a design. It's God's design. And letter B, unity is by the Holy Spirit's action. Unity is by the Holy Spirit's action. It says for one, by one spirit. What made the church one back then was the Holy Spirit. What makes us one now is our common life in the Holy Spirit. Spirit is capitalized, meaning God the Holy Spirit. It's not some kind of mystical union of souls. It's an action of God. So diversity is by God's design and unity is by God's action. It's God's action. What was so troubling in the early church and can be today is that the basis of their unity or the common life in the spirit had become a point of disunity. It's supposed to bring them together instead of cause disunity. When we realize that God is the source of diversity, and God is a source of unity, we realize the seriousness of the issues that they were having in that church and the issues that we can have in this church if we go against diversity or unity. If we deny diversity or disrupt unity, the body of Christ, we are fighting against the living God. Just, just take note of that. So God is the source of diversity and unity. Number two, we are all different. Duh. Okay. Seems obvious, doesn't it? We are all different. Sounds like an obvious statement. And we agree conceptually, but what about in reality? What about reality? Let me illustrate from the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage. During our dating years, which for some begins as early as first grade, we began to look for that special someone to share our life with. Our soulmate. What do we look for in a spouse? common interests, activities we enjoy together, common values, like backgrounds, mutual communication and compatibility. And when I ask couples, why, why do they want to get married? They will say, we love each other, or we have so much in common. The interpretation is, we are in unity. We're in unity. Then they get married, and what happens? She likes to stay up late. He likes to go to bed early. She likes to read. He likes to watch television. She likes movies full of drama and romance, even Hallmark, okay? He likes action and adventure. He likes camping. She likes the Sheraton. His idea of getting along is to avoid conflicts of all types. She actually enjoys conflict because it's energizing. 
She is highly structured and organized. He's an organizational disaster. He's prompt. She's always late. What do we have? Anything but unity, right? Whatever happened to all we have in common? Where did that go? So both of us in a marriage try to change our spouse. Why? So that they can be more like us. Diversity, rather than being a cause to celebrate, becomes a, a cause of conflict. Anybody here relate? Okay. Anybody? Come on. Be honest. My hand's up. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm not stereotyping. I'm just describing my brother's marriage. Okay. Just so you know. <laughs> now, those of you who are not yet married, marriage is worth every bit of work and effort that there is. Just remember, I tell every couple that's thinking about marriage, marriage is the development of our character. Very simply. It's all good. Now, when we apply this to the body of Christ, the church, what do we find? We find diversity. We're all different. But really, we want everyone to be just like us. We want everyone to value what we value. We want everyone to agree with us. Agree? Just agree? Just checking. Why don't you see? I, I want that, we, but we're all different. We, we shouldn't be trying to get everybody into uniformity. God made diversity, we must celebrate it. It's something to celebrate. If we were all an I, we would be a monstrosity. And I love how he describes that in this chapter. So we are all different. Number three, we are all important. We are all important. 19 and 20 says, if they were all one part, where would they, the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. It's important. Again, again great in concept, but it's really hard to practice. We, we like hierarchies. We like order. We like pecking orders. When we're with a group of people, we find our place. Some people naturally lead, some follow, some add humor, some add sensitivity, some add creativity, some add chaos, okay? And then when all of that happens in a group, we begin to classify people. And we de designate some as more important to the functioning of the group and others as less important. There's a hierarchy. That's what the Corinthians were doing in their church. Some were more important, they thought. They thought. But we are all important. Different functions? Yes. Different importance? No. No. And some tend to deny their importance and they feel inferior. And using the analogy of the, of the human body, it's, it's interesting. Yes, there are some vital organs, okay? And we can survive without an appendix and a gallbladder. Some of you have had those out. I'm not going to ask you to tell who. But basically, we've had certain parts removed, and, and we still function okay. But all parts are necessary in order to function properly. And yes, if you cut the head off, the body cannot function without a brain. That's true. But can the, the brain survive on its own? <laughs> no. So it's not more important. Chafin writes this, tells this story. He says, when I was a freshman, I met a student who had been destined to be one of the great fullbacks in college football. During his high school years, because of the combination of size, speed, and agility, he had broken all sorts of records and had been highly recruited by major universities. Then on a summer job at a lumber camp, a job he had taken as much for the training aspects as for the income, he lost part of his big toe in a freak accident. And it ended his career as an athlete. What he discovered was that, that the loss of his big toe lost him his fast starts and, and his agility. 
The church has a lot of big toes out there, and they're just taken for granted. You know, we don't think about it. It's just a, it's another, another big, it's just a big toe, okay? And we must be careful that we don't forget how important every part is for the functioning of the body of the church. Now, some of the tension in Corinth was a result of social differences or economic disparities, cultural differences, or spiritual variations. Asking what gives us significance because this whole issue of how do we claim significance, money, social standing, cultural background, education, race, material possessions, spiritual giftings. Our significance is found in God through our relationship with Jesus Christ and the giftings that he has given. It's not anything else. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. God has made you significant. God has made you important. An attitude of self-importance can permeate a whole church. We can say, man, we're the, we're the church of what's happening now, and we're the hot church in town. You know, I've, I've, I've been part of the church that's happening and the church that's not happening. It's like, you know, that's, that's not what it's about. We're not self-important. All churches are important. The local church, and there are many in Eau Claire. The universal church, which is worldwide. The parachurch, which performs function the church cannot or will not do. All of those are part and parcel of the body of Christ. All are important. Fact number four, we need each other. We need each other. Verse 21 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. We like to be independent. We don't necessarily like interdependence. And, and the author and child psychologist, Dr. James Dobson, talking about independence said, the exercise of power for control or independence begins when a baby is one day old. Be ready, be ready, one day old. That's when the battle begins, and you, you, guys can, you guys can attest to that. Independence, we hear it all the time. I'm self-sufficient, I don't need anybody. One of the first words our now 35-year-old daughter, Brittany, said after, of course, it was Dada. The first thing is Dada. Uh, then she said Mommy. But the, the, literally, the third, third word she came out with was myself, myself, myself. She wanted to do it by herself. She didn't want help. She wanted to be independent. And she still is independent. And she was until she moved to L.A. and couldn't find something in the grocery store, picked up the cell phone and called Judy in Seattle to have her help. Go figure that out. <laughs> Judy's there. She said, I'm at the grocery store. I'm like, where do you find? And I'm, Judy's going, what? I'm in Seattle. What do you want me to do? You know, when they need you, they need you. And good, thank God for unlimited long distance and all the other things that we have. How independent are your body parts? How independent are they? You get something in your eye. Your back itches. Your stomach gets hungry. You sneeze and you have to blow your nose. You're in danger and you scream for help with your voice. You see danger and your legs run. You touch a hot stove and you react, whatever it is. See, our body parts really need each other. They, they really do. In the body of Christ, we also really need each other. Chafin says we do four things. We compliment, we challenge, we comfort, and we communicate. We really 
need each other. And I will challenge people from time to time that you cannot live the Christian life as a wandering body part. You must be connected. People say, I don't have to go to church. You need to be connected somewhere where there are other parts of the body or you're just a wandering elbow or a wandering knee or a wandering big toe. I mean, not connected. We really do need each other. I need the body, the body needs me. Fact number five, we honor each other. We honor each other. Verses 23 and 24 says, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Place, honor means to place value upon, to, to honor, to offer protection. There are private parts and there are internal organs. They're unseen, but vital. They're protected and important. And in the Corinthian church, there was an attitude of disrespect. It was just total disrespect for the hidden background gifts. You're not out front, how can you be very important? An attitude of superiority for the out front gifts, not realizing that, that there are real important gifts that are hidden. In churches today, some, some churches elevate the cerebral gifts. Intellect, education, knowledge, and wisdom. Some elevate the mystical gifts. Tongues, prophecy, miracles, and healings. Some elevate the service gifts. It's, it's all about mercy and helps, or evangelism, or elevating experiential gifts. All the gifts, all the gifts are to be in operation in every local church. The church that never was, the church that can be. By elevating one gift, we demean others. Unity, diversity, must be a balance. In Corinth, they, they, this particular one, they elevated tongues. Other churches elevate all kinds of different things. The unity is in the diversity. If we communicate that one gift is available to all, it, it flies in the face of diversity. That's a way to elevate that particular gift above others. The unity is in the diversity. And don't, don't do the projection thing. Everybody ought to be like me. Now, we ought to be passionate about our giftings, but don't elevate some and thereby demean others. We honor and value each other. If we can say we can get along without you or your gift, it destroys the diversity that God intended for the body. If we negate others as less important than ourselves, we destroy unity. We honor, we honor each other, very important. Fact number six, we care for each other. We care for each other. Verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. Equal concern. Equal means equal. Just, just saying. It means equal. How do we care? We recognize all are different, all are important. We need each other. We honor each other so that there's no divisions. How do we care? How do we care for each other? Letter A first is maintain the unity. Maintain the unity. That's how we care. We do not allow differences to divide, whether it's gifts and abilities, socioeconomic status, race, culture, opinions, or even theology. Now let me, let me address the theology thing for a moment. I meet with a pastor's group once a month, 
great group of about 15 pastors, sometimes more. And we meet monthly for fellowship, communication, and prayer for one another. We don't agree on all the theology. It includes Bethesda, Jacob's Well, Valley Brook, Ecclesia, Peace Lutheran, The Bridge, Renew Church, Calvary Baptist, Red Cedar, Eau Claire, Harvest Time, Cedar Creek, Redeeming Grace, and others. We meet, we pray, and we encourage one another. We don't agree on every theological issue, but we encourage one another because we're all part of the body. There's equal concern and equal care, and we, we recognize and let me just tell you something. A lot of these pastors, you don't know them, but they pray for us. They pray for Eau Claire Westland. And we ought to be praying for them. Gordon Fee says, no special care is lavished on one member to the detriment of others. And this term denotes not tepid emotion, but strong care, passionate care, passionate in maintaining the unity. And just agreeing to disagree on some of those issues. Now, we must be in agreement on the, the major doctrines, and I'll, I'll address this a little bit, because this, this is sometimes an area of confusion in the church, the local churches. We must not sacrifice truth. We must, I would rather be divided by truth than united in error. So, now what do I mean by that? Don't sacrifice truth. Um, one of the issues or one of the things that has been on the forefront for the last three months um, here in America has been the Supreme Court. How many of you saw at least one news article or saw something about the Supreme Court? Okay, yeah, I'm sure you did. Okay. On the Supreme Court, there are two main areas of thought and two types of judges. Two types of judges. These are, these are big, broad categories, okay? There are originalists and revisionists. Okay, and if you haven't, if you follow this at all, there are, are originalists and revisionists. Originalists believe that we must interpret the Constitution as it was originally intended, okay? Origin. The revisionists believe our Constitution needs to change with the times and the culture, and they believe it's a living document that changes. And of course, they come out with very different results from the originalists and, and, and revisionists. Well, we have the same issue in the Christian church having to do with our Constitution. Our Constitution is the Bible. It's our standard of faith and practice. Revisionists believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, but we need to adapt and change the culture. They will ask, did God really say that, or did God really mean that? And they will, they will elevate human intellect in today's culture to accept or reject or adapt the Bible to today's cultural norms. Okay, they're revisionists. Okay. Then there are originalists, originalists, also known as inerrantists, which the Wesleyan Church is part of this, this group. We believe the Bible is to be interpreted as written in its original context, properly interpreted, okay? You have revisionists, you have originalists. We believe the authority is in the written word of God. We believe the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God, inerrant in the original autographs of which we have amazingly accurate copies. Now, when you go to the church, you discover that by and large, revisionists have come to reject whole sections of the Bible, especially those where the culture has pushed up against it, things like marriage and family, adapting their theology to accept sinful practices, such as homosexuality, gender modification, same-sex marriage, and all those kinds of things. Why do they do that? Because they are 
revisionist. So you may have someone who's a pastor in a church that's, that, that believes that and teaches that, and they say, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, whatever, but they believe in the revision of Scripture. They're revisionists. Originalists interpret the Word of God as written, applying the sound interpretive techniques called hermeneutics. And you'll find these two groups, and why, how do we fellowship, and how do we have things in common with someone like that? How do we, how do we navigate that? There are two broad, and I say broad because there, there are exceptions everywhere, but two broad categories for these two camps. The mainline churches are typically revisionist, and the evangelical churches are typically originalist. Now, there's an overlap, so don't just make, make caution here. And as evangelicals, we refuse to sacrifice those truths, the truth of the Word of God, for unity. As we'll say, we will not cooperate, we will not do things, because you stand totally against what the Bible says, because you revised it, it's revisionist. We believe that there are biblical absolutes, areas where the Bible is very clear, and we cannot be in unity with people who reject biblical truth and practice unrighteousness. But with those that are in the evangelical camp, the originalists, we must care more about unity in the church than our own op opinions in non-essential issues, things like baptism, eternal security, charismata, etc. There are so many things that we believe in and agree on. But I wanted to just draw that parallel because the Supreme Court thing has been so visible and we've had that same battle going on, not only in the court system, but also in the Christian church, the Protestant church in America. How do we balance that and still care for one another? That is the question. But we are called to care for one another by maintaining unity, maintaining unity where we can. Another aspect of caring for one another has to do with sickness or disease. How do we care for the body? We deal, letter B, we deal with disease. disease. Now I'm speaking metaphorically here. But if a part of our physical body contracts a disease, the rest of the body is affected and takes immediate steps to heal the disease. You have an infected cut or you have a broken bone or you have cancer, whatever it is. We have to take steps to bring healing to our body, our physical body. Well, what is the disease? What is disease to our spiritual body? What is disease to the spiritual body, the church, the body of Christ? The Bible says our disease is something called sin. Sin. Now, if our physical body is sick, we don't say, oh, kidney disease, I don't deal with kidney disease, or cancer, or I don't want anything to do with cancer. No, whatever disease presents itself, if we truly care, we will deal with it. Now, why? Why do you deal with it in your physical body to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring health? And since we have a disease called sin in our human existence, it's called sin. It's called sin orientation, sin orientation. Now, we hear a lot today about the term sexual orientation. And I'm gonna go just, just very clearly state the term sexual orientation is an invention of the natural mind. Does not exist in the Bible. Did not exist in America till about 100 years ago. There is no such thing as sexual orientation. There is only gender, male and female. That's not what you're gonna to hear today. There's gender, there's male and female, but there is sin orientation. 
okay? Sin orientation. There's gender and there's sin orientation. And the Bible teaches us that all of us, okay, every one of us has sin orientation, okay? We all have sin orientation. Stay with me, stay with me, please. Sin orientation general or sin orientation specifically. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10-12 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Sin orientation in all of us. It's a, it's a, it's a dark picture. Of course, that's why Jesus came, but it's a sin orientation. Now, usually this sin orientation, in fact, always this sin orientation, is manifested in a weakness or orientation towards a particular sin, okay? Sin orientation orients us towards a particular weakness that we might have. In the church, in Jesus' day, the most common sin orientation was judgmentalism, self-righteousness, and pride. Oh, Jesus took the religious people to task. Their sin orientation was pride and arrogance. It might be gossip or adultery or lust. Some have a sin orientation toward lying or cheating or stealing. Some have a sin orientation toward sexual perversion or homosexuality. It's a sin orientation. It's not a sexual orientation. It's a sin orientation. No matter what our sin orientation is towards, all of us all of us have sin orientation. And our sin disease needs to be dealt with so that it can be made well, healthy, and restored to full function in the body of Christ. Caring for the body, caring for one another, includes dealing with the disease of sin, whatever form it takes in our body. That's why God calls on us to deal with disease in our bodies and the disease of sin, not only in the church, but in our culture. That's a whole nother time. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Be tempted. There's no room for self-righteousness. Self There's no room for judgmentalism. James 5.20 says, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sin. Deal with the disease of sin in order to be restored, to be healthy. Sometimes the disease is so severe that there has to be amputation or cutting away of that. That's not the idea. But for the sake of the body, it may have to happen. The goal is never amputation, but it's healing and restoration. We care for each other. That's the foundation of this whole thing, is caring for one another, and it's love. That's why we believe the only way to operate in a healthy manner, that's why God, when he, he wrote the Ten Commandments through Moses, he laid out those ten relational guidelines so that we could live in health in relationship with God and health in human relationships. The foundation is love and care. Fact number seven, we empathize with each other. We empathize with each other. Verse 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you 
are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. We identify with, we have sympathy with, empathy with. What one feels, we all feel. What one experiences, we all experience. It's impossible for me to imagine a body in pain and the rest of the body is kind of at peace, okay? I once had a kidney stone, okay? I don't, know if you, I don't know if you want to share, you know, my hand's up, I had a kidney stone. Everybody else had it, yeah. You, you can understand. Uh, I feel your pain. The pain of kidney stone has been compared to the pain of childbirth. Judy says right, yeah, sure you are. I was with Judy through two deliveries. She claims I was asleep. It was two in the morning. I don't know. I, I can't remember. And I think God allowed kidney stones so that I could identify the pain my wife went through. I don't know. That could be. But back to the kidney stone. When I was in major pain, my legs didn't say, hey, that's your problem, so sorry. My legs paced the floor. I was trying to find a solution to alleviate the pain. My arms didn't ignore it. My whole body was obsessed with relieving the pain of my kidney stone. It's not just a man thing, okay? It's, it's a real thing. When the body of Christ in the church, in suffering and in pain, we share together. We share together. In being honored, we all rejoice together. If someone is successful, attains a goal, financial success is publicly honored, we rejoice together. If you succeed, I succeed. If you're in pain, I'm in pain. We are one body, one body. We empathize with each other. I've seen that worked out many times in the body of Christ where people gather around others who are going through difficult times. No matter what that pain is, it can be a, a, a child that's, that's running from Jesus, it can be a physical need of a relative, somebody that's dying, a parent, and you know, there are so many things that we experience, a, a sickness we can't get through, a financial need. We feel and empathize with each other. Now I want to just say a final note here on diversity, on diversity. Verses 28 to 31. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts? Now we read here, Seven rhetorical questions, seven rhetorical questions. In, in, in the English language, when we ask a rhetorical question, the answer can be yes or no. It can be yes or no. So you ask a rhetorical question, it can be, the answer could be yes or no. In the Greek, the language of the New Testament, there's this little participle that accompanies each rhetorical question. And depending on which participle's there, there's an expected answer of yes or no. It's in, in this case, the participle is may, which means the expected answer is no. So basically, when you read this, in the original Greek, you can read, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Here's where Paul hammers home the fact of diversity. It's diverse. 
the diversity. There's no one gift given to everyone. And by communicating that one gift is available to all flies in the face of diversity, which is emphasized here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Diversity. Now there are two important distinctions when looking at the Bible, two questions we have to ask about the passage. When there's something that is stated, ask the question, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive means this is what is. It's just describing what is. Prescriptive says this is what should be always. And we must ask the question, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? We get to verse 31. He says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. Next week, we're going to take a look at the most excellent way, which is love. Love is not one of the spiritual gifts. Love is a context within which we practice our spiritual gifts. But that's next week. The unity is in the diversity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us clear teaching in the Word of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us wisdom as we move forward. And that everything that, that, that surrounds us is, is your love and love for one another. That, that reckless, wasteful love that you just continue to pour, no matter whether it's returned or not. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us that kind of love and that we would begin to understand your love for us and how you call us to love one another in the unity of this body of Christ. In Jesus' name, let's stand, shall we?